People with depression and substance use disorders should receive treatment for both disorders at the same time. And this is not consistently happening. And this is in the context of not just the COVID pandemic, but an epidemic of addiction and overdose in the country. And many of us are working to try to reduce overdose rates. Others of us are also trying to reduce suicide rates. And knowing that to, to have a real good chance of addressing either of these problems, we probably have to be thinking about them together in a more integrated way. That's Dr. Lara Coughlin and Dr. Allison Lin, who will talk about their article on the extent to which veterans with depression who either did or did not have a comorbid substance use disorder received appropriate outpatient treatment for depression. Their article appears in the May 2021 issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry. I'm Michael Roy, executive editor of the American Journal of Psychiatry, and this is AJP Audio. Dr. Lara Coughlin is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and an adjunct assistant professor of psychology at the University of Michigan. She's also a licensed clinical psychologist. Her research aims to find new ways to use behavioral economic frameworks to improve outcomes among individuals with substance use disorders. In particular, she is interested in decision-making around health behaviors, such as choosing between sooner and smaller rewards, like substance use, and delayed and larger rewards, like overall health or career development. Her current work looks at the delivery and evaluation of care for underserved and rural populations. Dr. Allison Lin is an addiction psychiatrist and assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Michigan, and a research scientist in the Department of Veterans Affairs Ann Arbor Healthcare System. Dr. Coughlin and Dr. Lin are co-authors of an article in our May issue entitled, Quality of Outpatient Depression Treatment in Patients with Comorbid Substance Use Disorder. Dr. Coughlin, Dr. Lin, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having us talk with you today. Thank you very much. Sure. Now, you both have done some interesting work in your career. So first, can you tell us how you became interested in your respective areas of research? Sure. One common theme I noticed during my training as a clinical psychologist was how treatments we have work great for some people, but far too few people have access to these treatments. So I grew interested in ways to increase reach of existing treatments, but also to identify treatments that might be more accessible than what we're currently using. Behavioral economics is this discipline that brings together economics and psychology and can be applied to interventions for treatment and for prevention of substance use disorders. These interventions can be subtle, such as nudges to help shape someone's behavior in a more healthy direction or more overt, such as incentives for behavior change. Importantly, most behavioral economic interventions can be delivered remotely without the need for patients coming into an office and often are relatively brief interactions, so don't require the same amount of time or travel burden as some more traditional treatment models. Right now, my work is focusing on developing and testing some behavioral economic treatments for people in rural areas where there are treatment provider shortages and often reaching treatment facilities can be pretty burdensome. Yeah, um, and I appreciate that question. Um, I think it's always very curious to, to hear about how people ended up where they are. Um, for me, you know, my educational background is in engineering and in economics as an undergrad, and I've always been drawn to kind of healthcare systems, understanding how systems work and trying to improve them. When I found myself in psychiatry residency, what I noticed was 
that the things that were most problematic or the challenges that my patients faced the most was around getting access to care, but in particular in the subgroup of patients with substance use disorders and addictions. There's a lot of complexity there. There's a lot of issues around stigma, but there's a lot of issues around access and and engaging people into treatment that that was really where I think the biggest challenges, it wasn't what medication I could prescribe or what treatments I could think about. It was really kind of how this healthcare system was working or oftentimes not working for this population. So when I saw all of those issues, you know, really made me decide to pursue addiction psychiatry. And I always knew I was going to do health services research, but this is the population that drew me in the most because I think they're the biggest issues to overcome. Thank you for sharing some of your background with us. And now your article in the journal investigates the degree to which patients with co-occurring depression and substance use disorders receive treatment that adheres to clinical practice guidelines. So I'd like to understand this intersection of comorbidity a bit more. How often does depression co-occur with other disorders? That's a great question. So about a quarter of people with depression also have a substance use disorder. And if we instead start with people who have a substance use disorder, about a third of those folks have a co-occurring depression diagnosis. So really the take home is that substance use problems are really overrepresented among those with depression and vice versa. And with all that in mind, what are the current recommendations or best practices for the treatment of these conditions? This is such an important question since comorbidity is really the rule more than the exception when treating mental health and substance use disorders. Best practices such as the clinical practice guidelines issued by the American College of Physicians support integrated or concurrent care for both disorders as opposed to treating one disorder and then transitioning care over to the other. This goes against some common misconceptions in the healthcare field that a person really needs to solve their substance use prior to treating other mental health issues. And I think this is one of the the key reasons why we decided to focus on this um, area of research. It's because, you know, as a clinician or in clinical areas, even though we've known this recommendation for a long time, for example, my training in residency and medical school, even, I really think that this belief or this misconception persists that there are a lot of folks who feel like if there's someone who's struggling with substance use, there's no way we can help them with anything else, including depression, but but might also include other comorbid mental health disorders. And so due to kind of seeing this type of Um, impact on the clinician side, we thought it was really important to see if that might have some impacts on the the care that patients were receiving. Well, so now that we have some context for your work, let's get to the objective of your study. What were you aiming to achieve in your work? So we wanted to benchmark how frequently this treatment standard of making sure that people with substance use disorders and depression receive treatment for their depression was being met in a real-world healthcare setting. So for this paper, we use Veteran Health Administration data to look at people with depression diagnoses and to see the treatments for depression that people with and without substance use disorders were receiving. And I'd like to turn now to how you conducted your research. Could you tell us about the participants of your study and how you identified them? Sure. So as I mentioned, these were all patients who were seen in the Veterans Health Administration during fiscal year 2017. We thought this was a pretty good place to look into the question of depression treatment receipt among people with substance use disorders as the Veterans Health Administration is the largest provider of addiction treatment services in the U.S. We identified patients with a new episode of depression based on their electronic medical records as a way to try to make sure that the depression was active. We also required that they had a recent 
And by that, I mean like in the last month screen for active depression symptoms, which was a sign that they were in need of treatment for depression. This resulted in a cohort of about 53,000 patients with a new episode of depression from 2017. Okay, I think one thing that Dr. Coughlin is pointing out is that, you know, to study some of these um, research questions about how care actually looks like in the real world, we really need large amounts, large amounts of data. And so in something like the veterans healthcare system, that's what we have available. And we're able to study these questions in a, you know, important uh, patient population, but also one where we have data across the entire country. And so that's the type of data or the, the size of the data that we need to, um, to answer some of these nuanced questions. And we also know these are real people. Um, obviously, you know, we can conduct research studies that use randomized controlled trials, but it's hard to, you know, assign one person to evidence-based or guideline concordant care and another person not. Um, whereas using these large data sets, we can really see what that use is in a real world setting and really impacts as well. And continuing on, on the theme of the data, for those really interested in the details, what tools or measures did you and your co-authors use to gather and analyze the data? So conveniently, all the data used for this project already existed in the Veterans Health Administration electronic records. So all we had to do was identify criteria to define the subset of patients of interest. In this case, patients with active depression with or without a co-occurring substance use disorder diagnosis. Once we had accomplished this, the analyses were quite simple. Our goal was just to compare how likely a patient with depression and a substance use disorder was to get treatment for depression to patients with depression but no substance use disorder. One somewhat complicating factor is that people can get treatment for depression both in the form of medication like antidepressants or in the form of psychotherapy like cognitive behavioral therapy. And both are considered to be gold standard treatments for depression. So when we were looking for high quality depression treatment, we needed to look for evidence of receiving either one of these effective treatments for the treatment of depression. One thing that I can also just add is Although all of this data was available, there are some unique aspects to the Veterans Health Administration. So one example is that in the VHA, veterans are screened often for depression using um, evidence-based instruments like the PHQ-2 and the PHQ-9. And so we were able to not only include people who have a diagnosis according to kind of uh, their medical records, but also who have had active symptoms, because sometimes folks can have a diagnosis of depression, but actually be in remission. And we really wanted to look at people who had a new diagnosis of depression, but with really active symptoms, meaning that they really warranted treatment. And so the VHA is really one of the only large, you know, national healthcare systems where we were able to have access to this type of information. Okay, thank you for the deeper dive into the methods. So now let's move to the results of your work. What were the main results with respect to how likely is it that patients with depression with or without a substance use disorder receive guideline concordant care? As we suspected might be the case, we found that people with both depression and substance use disorders were less likely to receive treatment for depression. It was less likely that someone with a substance use disorder would receive guideline recommended depression care, both when we looked at likelihood of receiving antidepressant medications and when we looked at likelihood of receiving psychotherapy for depression. It was also a consistent finding that people with a dual substance use and depression diagnoses were less likely to receive initial treatment for depression and were less likely to receive an adequate duration of treatment. Now I'm looking at figure two 
of your article here. And it figure two shows results for guideline concordant depressive treatment by different substance use disorders. For those who are listening and are not seeing what I'm pointing to, can you describe what were there any differences between disorders? Yeah. So when we broke down substance use disorders by specific types of substance use, like alcohol, opioids, or stimulant use disorders, we found that in particular, people with an alcohol use disorder were especially unlikely to receive depression treatment. This is discouraging since prior work has shown that the largest effects for concurrent depression and substance use treatment actually come from those with co-occurring alcohol use disorder. Or to say it differently, making sure we are providing depression treatment to those who also have an alcohol use problem is critically important. I think one thing to emphasize or one way to see this is, you know, in healthcare, when we think about who should be getting more treatment, it's those with more complicated disease or more severe disease. And what we're finding is that those more complex patients who likely need more treatment are actually getting less care. Um, and so this is a really important disparity to think about and think about how to address. Indeed. And now because your study had a large sample size, you had an opportunity to evaluate a variety of demographic characteristics, medical comorbidities, and other factors. Did any of these variables affect your findings? Yeah, so we examined several other factors that might impact receipt of high-quality depression treatment. A few noteworthy findings were that women and younger patients were more likely to receive treatment for depression. Also, racial and ethnic minorities, especially people who identified as Black or African-American, we're about half as likely to receive antidepressants, but we didn't see differences in receipt of psychotherapy for depression. Prior work has shown less assessment and treatment of mental health in marginalized groups, which could contribute to this disparity. And were there any other notable or surprising results that you and your team found? We noticed that some groups of people that we know are often underserved, such as people that live in rural areas or people who are homeless, were less likely to receive therapy for depression. Some of this may be that antidepressant treatment for depression is a better fit given patients' preferences and barriers to attending regular therapy sessions. However, now that we're in this new age of telehealth that has come about with the pandemic, for some people, like people that live far away from healthcare providers, there may be more access to this mode of treatment like therapy sessions than there was before. And as you've mentioned, your study population was made up of veterans receiving care from the Veterans Health Administration. Would the findings of your study extend to patients in the general population? I think that's a great question. We know that some of the barriers to treating the whole person when working with someone with a substance use and mental health disorder, instead of just focusing on the substance use, exist outside the Veterans Health Administration as well. For example, these misconceptions about the need for someone to achieve a period of abstinence before beginning treatment for depression are pretty widespread. However, future work should look at the generalizability of these specific findings among people with depression and co-occurring substance use disorder in other healthcare systems and other settings. Now, for context, we should make sure to ask, are there any other limitations to your study that may have affected what you have found? Absolutely. For example, we could only assess treatment received within the Veterans Health Administration. So conceivably, some veterans may have sought depression care from other providers, and we wouldn't know about that. 
Also, we had to make some decisions on how to define an active depression episode and what constituted an adequate dose of depression treatment. Some of these choices were informed by prior work and best practice guidelines, but it's possible if we, for example, use different criteria to define a new depression episode, that perhaps the findings would have shifted in some ways. And so now that we've gone over the results of your work, I'm curious if you detected any patient or structural factors that may contribute to inequity in the treatment of depression. We've touched a bit on some barriers, especially at the provider level, like providers not feeling well prepared to treat dual diagnoses or having misconceptions that stand in the way of providing depression treatment to those with substance use disorders. Some of these barriers can be addressed through training, targeted provider feedback, and facilitating strategies for providers to reduce stigma towards people with dual diagnoses, correct misconceptions, and provide education about best practices for dual diagnosis treatment. As you mentioned, patient level barriers are also likely to be at play here. For example, patients with dual substance use and depression diagnoses often have more complex psychiatric presentations that can include things like low motivation and low energy, impaired cognitions, disorganization, and substance use, which may impede their ability to effectively engage with treatment plans and limit treatment retention. This sort of patient level barrier may be reflected in the lower rates of depression treatment continuation that we saw as patients with co-occurring substance use disorders may be more likely to drop out from treatment. There's also a lot of possible ways to reduce barriers to facilitate treatment retention. For example, telehealth may be an option that some patients prefer as it takes less time than coming into the office and doesn't require the planning and logistics of transport to clinic. I would also add, I agree with all of those factors, so it's really complicated, right? It's important to look at it from the patient factors um, in terms of barriers and facilitators to treatment, and then the health system and the clinician side factors. Um, And I think it's important to think about the interrelationship between these, these factors as well. One other thing that we found that I think was very interesting was that it was just a reminder, honestly, that the vast majority of people with these dual diagnoses or comorbid conditions, so depression and substance use disorders, are not actually seen in specialty substance use disorder treatment programs like the one where I work, um, where I work as an addiction psychiatrist, where I'm specifically trained to uh, manage both mental health and addictions. But most of these patients are being seen in either primary care only for depression or um, general mental health settings, um, or kind of a combination of two in the VA, it's called integrated behavioral health or um, Uh, primary care mental health integration. And so only a tiny fraction of these patients ever reach kind of my clinic door. And so it's really important to get this kind of treatment knowledge to more generalists, including general psychiatrists, to better understand how to treat this kind of more complex patient population. Well, continuing in that vein, I'd like you both to take a step back and give us like a high level view beyond just your study and say, what are some ways you think we can improve depression care for patients with comorbid substance use disorders? In addition to helping make sure providers are equipped to provide high quality treatment to these patients with dual mental health and substance use diagnoses, and to making sure that barriers to patients engaging in treatment are addressed, healthcare systems also need to consider if they're structured in a way that facilitates patients receiving concurrent care. Some models for this type of coordinated care exist, like care management and collaborative care, but currently they're more the exception than the rule in practice. So there's plenty of room for improvement and innovation. 
And I can, I would also add that I think there's probably two big buckets of things that if I had, you know, a billion dollars, I'd put, want to put money in. One is we need improved treatments, right? So right now we're primarily talking about separate treatments, you know, depression medications, depression psychotherapy, substance use disorder psychotherapy. Can we create a more integrated program to kind of help patients with both of these issues, given how prevalent it is? Um, I think in general, in mental health or in, in psychiatric care, we have some really nice tools. We have, you know, a host of medications, a host of psychotherapies. Um, but one of the challenges these days is a lot of our patients don't receive them at all, right? So these tools are not going to be helpful for anyone if they don't receive them or don't have access to them. And so if we think about new treatments or new interventions, I think we have to think about how do we deliver them in a way that are going to be more appealing to more patients. And in our study, what we're finding is that we're identifying specific subgroups of mental health, of folks with mental health disorders that are in particularly high need, including those with substance use disorders. So if we wanted to improve depression treatment across the country, we we really need to think about addressing these needs of these complex subgroups. So that's one bucket. The other bucket is the, you know, the way that we conceptualize care delivery. So not only even if we had better treatments, let's say a more integrated program um, that that or one that develops, you know, includes even more effective medication components or more effective psychotherapy components, how do we actually get it to more people? We know substance use disorder treatment rates are actually much lower than mental health disorder treatment rates. So from our national surveys, it, it's somewhere around 10 to 15% of anybody with a substance use disorder gets treatment. And that's far lower for mental health treatment. And so when you're trying to work with this complex patient population, you really have to think about what that means in terms of where you're engaging people, where you're meeting them. You know, most folks actually, there's so much stigma around getting treatment in specialty care that it's really important to think about how to engage them when you do see them or when you do uh, meet these folks in primary care settings and other settings and getting people to talk more about their substance use issues and how it might relate to their depression. Um, particularly, I think during COVID-19, um, you know, there's all of these increased stressors. We know a lot of um, the stressors have impacted and increased substance use and mental health um, issues. It's really finding people in non-specialty you know, specialty treatment settings and engaging them in care in those places too. Great, thank you. And as we wrap up, what would you say are the overall points that researchers, clinicians, and other mental health professionals should take away from your article? I think if there is one take home, it's to be aware that people with depression and substance use disorders should receive treatment for both disorders at the same time. And this is not consistently happening. As a clinician myself, I'm a, I'm a psychologist, I've been pushing myself to consider if I unintentionally may be providing different care for patients who are depressed, but who also misuse substances and trying to explore why I might be inclined to make different treatment choices for patients presenting with dual diagnoses. I, I think one of the other major points for me is really that emphasis of nationally, you know, we really wanna to continue to improve depression care in the country. And really the, the key ways to do that are to treat the folks who are struggling the most, right? Or who are currently receiving the lowest rates of treatment. And we've really identified this group of substance use, um, of people with substance use disorders as being particularly high need. And this is in the context of not just the COVID pandemic, but an epidemic of addiction and overdose in the country. And many of us are working to try to reduce overdose rates. Others of us are also trying to reduce suicide rates. And knowing that to, to have a real good chance of addressing either of these problems, we probably have to be thinking about them together in a more integrated way. And finally, what are some recommendations you have for further research in this area? 
We already touched on one, there's a need to look at generalizability of these findings outside of a veteran population, but perhaps more pressingly, there's a need to develop interventions to remedy this inequity in treatment provision, and there are a lot of potential points for intervention at the patient, provider, or healthcare level, all of which could meaningfully impact the likelihood of someone with depression and with a substance use condition receiving the best possible treatment. Dr. Lara Kaufman and Dr. Allison Lin, co-authors of an article in our May issue, on treatment gaps and guideline concordant depression care among those with substance use disorders compared with those without. Thank you both for speaking with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. This concludes this episode of AJP Audio. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to it. Please also visit our website, ajp.psychiatryonline.org to check out trending articles, find CME courses, and watch videos highlighting some of our other articles. APA Publishing has other podcasts you can listen to. Psychiatry Unbound is the book's podcast from APA Publishing. It's hosted by Dr. Laura Roberts, editor-in-chief of APA Books. Also check out From Pages to Practice, which reviews the latest research published in the journal Psychiatric Services. It's hosted by Dr. Lisa Dixon, editor-in-chief of the journal, along with Dr. Josh Bereson. You can subscribe to these podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, or on any of the popular platforms. Thank you for listening.